This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge with a question for you. When was the last time you felt like you were the object of someone's resentment? Maybe you'd been inconsiderate in some way or treated them badly and they called you on it. How did it make you feel and how did you respond? Maybe you felt guilty and offered some sort of confession. Maybe you acknowledged their resentment but didn't feel guilty at all. In either case, you would have been right in the centre of the moral terrain that we're exploring this week on The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. I have sinned against you, my Lord. And I would ask that your precious blood would wash and cleanse every stain until it is in the seas of God's forgetfulness. Thank you. When the American televangelist Jimmy Swaggart was caught up in a sex scandal in the late 1980s, he offered up that now famous confession. Confession as spectacle has become something of a feature of public life. Whether or not it's a particularly useful form of atonement is something that people have differing views about, and we'll be talking about that a little later in the program with today's guest. My name is Hannah Tierney. I'm a lecturer at the University of Sydney, and I work mostly on moral philosophy and metaphysics. Hannah Tierney has a particular interest in guilt and blame and confession as public phenomena, but also in the interpersonal realm, where these practices carry a good deal of moral significance, wedded as they are to what's called reactive attitudes. I think that philosophers came really preoccupied with the role that reactive attitudes play in our practices of blame and our theories of blameworthiness around the time. Reactive attitudes being what exactly? When I say reactive attitudes, I mean things like resentment or indignation, gratitude, hurt feelings, love, forgiveness. Um, P.F. Strawson, in this really influential article, Freedom and Resentment, that came out in 1962, sort of told philosophers that they should be paying closer attention to our relationships when they're theorizing about moral responsibility and blameworthiness. And they should also be focusing on the reactive attitudes, things like resentment, indignation, etc. And philosophers, by and large, heeded that advice. Since then, discussions of blameworthiness and moral responsibility have featured heavily the reactive attitudes and especially resentment. But recently, I think there's been a shift in discussions about blameworthiness and responsibility to a different reactive attitude, and that's guilt. In the last several years, there have been a large number of papers that defend views of blameworthiness and moral responsibility in terms of guilt. So some philosophers think that to be blameworthy just is to deserve to feel guilty for what you've done. Others think that to be blameworthy, an implication of that is that you deserve to be guilty or deserve to feel guilt. And some think that being blameworthy means that it would be appropriate for you to feel guilty. Now, I think all of these views have really, they're really interesting and they've got a lot going for them. And one thing that they've got going for them is that they can make sense of this idea that blameworthy agents deserve to suffer. Now, this isn't to say that blameworthy agents deserve to suffer for all eternity. It's just the idea that to be blameworthy just means that you deserve to suffer to the right degree and for the right reasons. And those reasons, importantly, have everything to do with your culpability. Well, we're going to prize all this open over the next 25 minutes or so. But first of all, I I just want to ask where the interest in this lies for you. Do you have a particular stake in this kind of inquiry? 
Yeah. When I first started reading these papers that defend these guilt-centric views, I had a kind of odd reaction to them, which is that I felt really relieved. And I think I felt relief um, because I am a relatively guilt-prone person. I typically feel guilty for the blameworthy things that I've done. I also feel guilty for things that aren't at all blameworthy, but that's a different story. (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I also can typically generate a significant amount of guilt just by reflecting on my own behavior without ever being the target of anyone's blame or resentment or indignation. And that means that on these guilt-centric views, I'm able to get everything that I deserve as a blameworthy person just by reflecting on my own behavior, just in virtue of thinking, of you know, feeling guilty. And that's kind of relieving. I don't have to engage in the blaming practices. But as soon as I felt relief about that, that was sort of instantaneously followed by a sense of guilt, ironically, which is that I'm not sure that I should be let off the hook. I'm not sure that I should get to opt out of the blaming practices just because I can generate an adequate or deserved amount of suffering by reflecting on my own behavior. It seems like I should still be the target of people's resentment or indignation in virtue of my being blameworthy. And I owe those victims, the people that I've wronged something in virtue of my being blameworthy as well. And in a way, I think these guilt-centric views, they've capture something important that Strassen highlighted. They capture the importance of the reactive attitudes, but they ignored another one of Strassen's lessons, which is the importance of focusing on our relationships when we theorize about blameworthiness and responsibility. Because on these accounts, it's possible for me to get everything I deserve without ever changing my relationships or engaging with other people. I can just do it in my own head. Well, let's get into some of the philosophy here. And I'd like to begin with one of the philosophers that you're in dialogue with. This is um, Andreas Brecker Carlson from the University of Oslo. Uh, he's done some really interesting work on blame, particularly with his notion of deserved sanction. It's an account of blame that I'd like to bring up here because it seems to make intuitive moral sense. So, just first of all, just in terms of definitions, what, what is deserved sanction? The deserved sanction view states that an agent is blameworthy if and only if that agent deserves to be sanctioned by outwardly expressed resentment or indignation. And so a way this is this kind of view can capture the practices of blame really nicely. What you deserve when you're blameworthy is to be the target of a particular kind of practice, right? Expressions of resentment or indignation from other people in your community. And so that captures a relation aspect, relationship aspect quite nicely. But Carlson thinks this view is actually quite flawed. And it's flawed because people react to being resented and being the target of indignation in very different ways. So some people don't feel any amount of guilt or remorse when they're the target of resentment. They might even feel happy or gleeful that people resent them. And other people experience an immense amount of suffering and harm, just the slightest expression of reproach. But on the deserved sanction view, these agents, they both get what they deserved so long as they're the target of resentment, even if that makes them feel very different ways and has radically different effects on their lives. And Carlson and other people like Randy Clark think that this is very counterintuitive because what blameworthy people deserve isn't to be the target of a particular practice. It's that they deserve to feel bad. They deserve to suffer. Now, again, they don't deserve to suffer for all eternity or deserve torture or anything like that, but they deserve to suffer nonetheless. And because our practices of expressing resentment and indignation, they can't guarantee that people are going to suffer. There's no way that the deserved sanction view can capture what it is that blameworthy agents actually deserve. Okay, and so this is where we come to to guilt, which works better for someone like Carlson, because as well as an affective component, it has a cognitive one. And that's an interesting turn here. What is the cognitive component of guilt and how does it work with the affective component to make it a, an ideal uh, reactive attitude for, for building an account of blameworthiness. Right. So to feel guilty, most everyone agrees, is to feel bad. 
it's not possible to feel guilty without feeling some sense of unpleasantness or some degree of unpleasantness. And most philosophers who work on the emotions think that emotions, including guilt, have both an effective component and a cognitive component. And there's a lot of disagreement about what the cognitive component of guilt actually amounts to. So some people, like Doug Portmore, think that to feel guilty is to feel bad, and it's also to have this thought that one deserves to feel bad in light of violating some legitimate demand. Other people like Randy Clark think that the relevant thought is that one is blameworthy. And Andreas Carlson thinks that the relevant thought is that one has shown ill will or has acted with ill will. And by reflecting on both the effective and cognitive features of guilt, you can see how it becomes the ideal reactive attitude to analyze blameworthiness in terms of if you want, if you think that blameworthy agents, what they deserve is to suffer. Because to feel guilty is to suffer. And it's not just to suffer, but it's to suffer in light of thoughts about one's culpability, the thought that one has shown ill will, or the thought that one's blameworthy, or the thought that one's violated a legitimate demand. And this is exactly the kind of suffering that people tend to think blameworthy agents deserve. So if you experience guilt, then you're experiencing suffering, which is right, but also you're experiencing it for the right reasons. Exactly. Yeah. You're suffering in light of your own culpability or in thoughts of your own culpability. But this has moral shortcomings as well, doesn't it? If we turn to the notion of deserved guilt and the problems with that. Can you outline that for us? Good. So I think some of the problems come up when we think about the possibility that agents can go through their whole lives engaging in blameworthy behavior, getting exactly what they deserve by reflecting on their own culpability and never having to engage in any sort of blaming process or blaming practice with other people, right? So if you're the kind of agent who can experience the adequate and deserved amount of guilt just by reflecting on your own culpability, then you don't really deserve to be blamed by anyone. You don't really deserve to be the target of anyone's resentment or indignation because those emotions only exist and are only justified in terms of blameworthiness if they can generate deserved amounts of guilt. But if you already experience the deserved amount of guilt, then those things lose their force or their importance. But you might think that a theory of blameworthiness should try to capture the importance of these practices and shouldn't try to undermine them. Accounts of blame like these seem to proceed from the assumption that the primary function of blame is punitive. You know, the object is to make someone suffer. Do you go along with that completely? I would like to remain neutral on whether I think that blame where the agents deserve to suffer, but I certainly don't deny that blame can cause agents to suffer. I don't deny that's a function of blame, but I do deny that that's the only function of blame. And I also deny that it's the only function of blame that can be relevant to our theories of blameworthiness. So I think another important function of blame is that it can express respect. So when I resent someone for treating me in a blameworthy way, when I resent them, I'm not just um, trying to get them to suffer or you know, engaging in a practice that tends to get people to suffer. I'm also communicating something to that person. Namely, I think I'm communicating that I take myself to be the kind of agent who ought not be treated in a blameworthy way or ought not be shown ill will or whose legitimate demand should be respected. And I'm also communicating that when that's not the case, right? when I am shown ill will or treated in a blameworthy way or when my demands are violated, then I deserve something from the perpetrator. I deserve moral attention, care, or concern. I think this is a really morally important message that we communicate when we blame. It's Self-respect is an important message to communicate for lots of reasons. It shores up an agent's worth right, in the moral community. It can communicate to other people that, that, this, that this person ought not be treated in the relevant ways. And it can also communicate that to the perpetrator. They can really show them the extent of what they've done wrong. And it can sort of invite them to give the victim the moral attention that they deserve. Now, this moral attention can take lots of different forms. It can take 
form in an apology or an atonement or an attempt to repair the relationship. I think all of these things are ways that we can give moral attention to victims. Can it bypass then the experience of guilt in the wrongdoer? Because as you're outlining this, I'm thinking, well, you know, if, if I were a certain kind of person, you could come to me and say, well, you've done this terrible thing. I feel that you need to atone for that because I have self-respect and I demand to be treated in a particular way. So, you're, you're articulating that sense of self-respect. Could I not then atone for what I had done in a way that you found satisfactory, but not experience any guilt at all. I might be doing it because, um, you know, something's come out that's going to affect my career, so I'd better go through the motions. And, and is, is guilt able to be just sort of bypassed in that way? Or do you think, do you see guilt as still being necessary, morally necessary in, in a situation like that? Typically not. So, typically when we do express resentment, the target of our resentment is going to experience guilt. That's just the way that these emotions tend to function. And you can look at people like Colleen McNamara's work on how it is that the reactive attitudes are communicative entities. Um, I also don't want to deny that guilt is important for for perpetrators to experience. I think that sometimes blame where the agents do deserve to suffer and guilt might be one of those ways. But you might question whether it's possible for someone to you know, maybe they're not capable of experiencing guilt. Is it possible to blame them and for that blame to still serve an important function? So if someone doesn't can't experience guilt or can't experience guilt at the hands of resentment, we might still have reasons to resent them because it could still serve this important role of communicating self-respect. And that perpetrator could perhaps understand that message of self-respect without actually ever feeling guilt. This is an interesting question about how agents work. Is it possible to understand the message that's being communicated or uptake the message that's being communicated by an expression of resentment without experiencing guilt? Is it possible to not experience guilt at all in the light of other people's resentment? These are interesting psychological questions that I'm not sure I have the answer to. Important here is the notion, as you say, that the wronged party is someone who sees themselves as deserving of morally decent treatment. So, that's one thing. But you also say that the wrongdoer's experience of guilt does nothing to communicate to the moral community that that wronged party respects herself. Why is it important to communicate more broadly that the victim cares about herself in that way? I think that messages of self-respect and messages of respect of the victim serve lots of important functions. So, think about a case in which someone doesn't express resentment towards someone who's wronged them. I think something is of importance is lost in that. I think something morally important is fails to be communicated, which is that that person takes himself to have self-respect. And when we communicate self-respect, we're doing lots of different things. I think we're shoring up our role as a moral agent in our moral communities and our status as someone who ought not be treated in the ways they don't want to be treated. I think that communicates that not only to the perpetrator of the wrongdoing and to the moral community, but it also in a way communicates that to the agent themselves. So by expressing resentment, being resentful of people who treat you poorly, you're able to sort of assure yourself that you are, in fact, the kind of agent that you take yourself to be. You're the kind of person who won't stand for poor treatment or ill regard, and you'll stand up for yourself in a way you can sort of reassure yourself of your own moral agency, which I think is important to do. Let's talk about confession here. Last year, I spoke with the philosopher Miranda Fricker about blame and forgiveness, and, and that conversation had a lot of really interesting parallels, I think, with this one. Um, one thing she talked about was the proleptic function of blame, which is based on the idea that if you treat a person as though they possess certain qualities and attributes, then you can actually help to manifest those qualities and attributes in that person. That's, that's prolepsis. So, 
by saying to someone, you were very thoughtless and inconsiderate towards me when you forgot my birthday, you can theoretically, in that act of blaming, help to make them a more thoughtful and considerate person. Does confession have a similar capacity, do you think? I think an important feature of guilt, an important reason that we engage in confessions is to communicate to the victims of our behavior and our actions that we actually do respect them. Like just like resentment can express self-respect, I think expressions of guilt can communicate respect to victims. So when I confessed guiltily to someone that I've wronged them in the relevant ways, I'm not just trying to make it clear to them that I'm in fact suffering in virtue of my wrongdoing. I'm also trying to communicate to them that I actually care about them. I take them to be the kind of person who shouldn't be treated in the way that I treated them. And in virtue of my behavior, they deserve something from me. They deserve an attempt to repair the relationship, an apology, or a sense of atonement, right? Those are things that they deserve and that I'm trying to give them or that I kind of make a promissory note of giving them when I communicate my guilt to them. And just like when we express resentment on our own behalf, we can kind of shore up our own status as a moral agent who's worthy of a particular kind of treatment. Expressions of guilt towards victims can communicate to them and shore up their status as moral agents as well. So if we continually get these messages from people after they've treated us in blameworthy ways that, oh, you deserve something in light of that treatment, you deserve more attention, care, or concern, then I might eventually come to believe that, hey, I do deserve attention, care, and concern when people treat me these ways. And I ought not be treated in the ways that I typically have been. And can that work for the wrongdoer as well, the person who's confessing their guilt? Do you think that they're also, in some sense, treating themselves in a way that can be morally reparative for them? Good. Yeah. So, I've gotten this question a few times where the idea is something like, well, if you don't experience guilt or you don't express guilt, right, when you feel it, that's kind of disrespectful to you, right? You're you're not treating yourself as the kind of agent who should be taking part in all of these blaming practices that are so morally important. You're trying to disengage with it from this practice. And you might think that one feature of expressing guilt to victims is not only to communicate to them that you care about them, but to communicate to, to yourself that you're going to try to do better, right? You're going to try to engage in reparative behaviors, and you don't think the kind of behavior that you engage in is acceptable. You're not that kind of person. And that might be a really important feature of guilt. And it's something that actually distinguishes it from shame, right? Where shame doesn't involve these reparative behaviors or urges to confess. If anything, it generates an action tendency of withdrawing from people. On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Hannah Tierney from the University of Sydney. We're talking about the moral ins and outs of guilt and confession. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. I misled people, including even my wife. I deeply regret that. We've been talking about interpersonal morality. I wonder how this sort of analysis translates into the broader public sphere. If you think about confession as public spectacle, which is something we see all the time, you know, public figures brought down by their sins and the subsequent ritual of confession and public apology. To what extent do you see this as occupying its own distinct and very interesting category of guilt and blame with its own moral hazards? I think that these public displays, public confessions are interesting related to 
not private confessions, but, you know, interpersonal confessions from one party to another. And it is interesting that when a public figure treats someone in a, in a blameworthy way, we often demand not just an apology, but a public apology. And you might wonder why that is. Like, why is it so important that the public figure express their guilt and admit to their wrongdoing, not just to the victim, right, but to everyone in in the relevant community? And one reason that you might think this is an important kind of behavior is that, oh, we really want to make sure that everyone knows that this person is in fact suffering in light of what they've done wrong. That's one thing to think. But notice that that doesn't really explain why it's important for the public as a whole to see this confession. And it's also not clear that we are going to be convinced that the person's actually feeling guilty, right? They could be putting on a show. So I think another reason to think that these public confessions are so important and that's why we demand them is not what it communicates to us about the perpetrator, but it's what it communicates about the victim. So when the perpetrator makes a public admission and a public confession, it communicates something to the whole community that the victim shouldn't be treated in the way that this person treated them. And that is important for the whole community to get to hear because it makes it clear that the victim shouldn't be treated that way by anyone, not just the perpetrator, but by anyone in the community. And it's a way of giving that victim a sort of outpouring of moral attention and care concern that they, they might deserve in that case. Right? When a public figure wrongs you, you might deserve a particular kind of moral attention, and that's the one that comes along with a public apology. So if we think about the role that public confessions can have in communicating messages about the victim, I think they make a lot more sense than when we just think about what these public admissions can tell us about the perpetrator. It makes me think of the ways in which public confessions are scrutinised so closely to get, as you say, a sense of whether or not the person is sincere. But I'm thinking of the public apology that the comedian Louis C.K. made, and he was very strongly criticised for speaking in terms of his own status and his own sort of position in the comedy community as someone who had behaved very badly towards women. But he sort of apologised for the fact that he had a lot of power and these women admired him so much and he abused that. It was it was still very much about, apparently very much about him more mm. than the victims. And that did not go unremarked on. Yes. Yeah, so if we think that the moral importance of a confession isn't just giving us an insight into the perpetrator's mindset, but communicating something important about the victim, we might have some guidelines about what makes a confession particularly successful or unsuccessful. So a confession that only articulates the degree to which the perpetrator is suffering in light of what they've done, right? Sort of say, I feel so terrible and sort of go on and on about how terrible they feel, but doesn't say anything about the moral importance of the victim and the importance of communicating some moral attention or care or concern to the victim, that might be make for a really unsuccessful public apology or not even a public apology, an apology in general. Hmm. So by reflecting on what good a confession can do for the victim, we can get some guidelines about what can make a confession go better or worse. What about the domain of social media and public shaming? We seem to be experiencing an epidemic of blame these days without a whole lot of confession. How do you view the moral outlines of this phenomenon in, in the context of what we're discussing here? Yeah, so I had this conversation with my students recently. So when we think about paradigmatic instances of blame, we typically think of one person resenting another person for something they've done, talking about it with that person, and then hopefully that the perpetrator confesses and tries to repair the relationship. But it's not clear that that's the most common form of blame that we see anymore. So if we think about expressions of resentment and indignation online and social media and on Twitter, there's a lot more instances of those that we see a day than the sort of interpersonal blame between two people communicating with one another. 
And so maybe paradigmatic blame shouldn't be thought of as this sort of one person talking to another person, but should be thought of as this phenomena that can take place between people who've never met, between people who never could possibly meet, and in the context in which, you know, millions of other people are are looking in and weighing in on that as well. There are, of course, very negative effects that we can see from piling on in the context of social media. And I don't want to deny that people can really lose important things. They can lose their careers. They can lose their livelihoods in ways that it seems like are really unfair. But again, you might think that there might still be an important moral function that communicating your blame, not just to the perpetrator, but to the whole community and standing up for a person who has been wronged, you know, in virtue of tweeting something about that person might have some more moral importance. And again, it's thinking about, well, what is this blame doing for the victim? Is it possible that our expressions of resentment and indignation online can communicate to the victim of the perpetrator's actions that they deserve moral attention, care, and concern, and that's a way of giving them that attention, care, and concern? Um, sometimes that can be really important if the victim is in a precarious position or their sort of role as an agent is up for grabs, right? Then these sort of large-scale expressions of resentment and indignation on their behalf can be really important. And they're not always going to justify the exp- these expressions, but sometimes they might. Well, that makes me think of the way in which a lot of the sort of angry static on social media it may be focusing attention on victims, but it also seems to be proceeding a lot of the time just from a, an impulse on somebody's part to either just to vent or to advertise themselves as a person who holds all the right opinions about all the right things and wants to denounce all the people that you're supposed to be denouncing. But maybe that impulse is irrelevant, I suppose, if, as you say, the focus is still on the victim. Two people I went to graduate school with, Justin Tosi and Brandon Wormke, have this work on moral grandstanding where they criticize exactly this kind of behavior that um, we've been talking about. But again, by thinking about the importance that blame can play for victims, you might think that this gives us guidelines and can give us some um, ways of thinking about successful or unsuccessful or justified or unjustified expressions of blame in the social media context. So if you if your expression of blame just solely focuses on the perpetrator and just piles on to something that's already been said by another person and is going to like cause real harm to the perpetrator and you're not really showing a clear way in which your blame is focusing moral attention to the victim, that might be a bad way of engaging in blame in the social media era. But there might be a way of engaging in blame in the social media era that is victim-directed and is showing real attention, care, concern directed towards that victim and communicating respect towards the victim. And it might be possible to do that in a way that even though it might harm the perpetrator a bit, um, it's still morally relevant and morally justified because of the important role it can play in the victim's life. How does this feed into your own use of social media? Because I certainly struggle sometimes with that impulse to well, certainly to morally grandstand, but also, you know, the piling on impetus is sometimes hard to resist. Sometimes you just want to make a joke. It's not even, doesn't even proceed from any particularly vicious intent, but there you are in the thick of it. <laughs> Do you find that same, uh, that same ambivalence in your own use of social media? I'm not on Twitter and I don't know if I engage in very much important moral communication on social media. Although given my own thoughts about this, maybe I should, maybe I could, you know, use my platforms to do the things that I think are so morally important when it comes to blaming. But I confess that, yeah, as a a whole, I'm not very engaged in these atmospheres. And I I think in part because I am so ambivalent about the real harms that can come along with them and the harms that can be done both to perpetrators and to victims. 
but at the same time, the importance and the real work that these venues can do. Hannah Tierney, lecturer in ethics and critical thinking at the University of Sydney. And that's it from us this week. I'm David Rutledge. You've been with The Philosopher's Zone and you can find us via the ABC Listen app or the RN website. Thanks to producer Diane Dean. See you next time. <laughs>